You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving to you. We went uh, back to South Carolina for Thanksgiving, and when you're away, you forget what it's like in the low country. And by that, I mean uh, a very close friend sort of sauntered up to me and said, I bet you, th- you think we drink more than anybody else. And I said, no, objectively, you drink more than ev- everybody else. And so it was one of those uh, fun Thanksgivings with, uh, on the water with the girls, but it really is good to be back uh, in Birmingham, and I, I hope that you had a blessed Thanksgiving as, as well, regardless of your uh, team loyalties, although... I can tell who's smiling today. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Way to go, who's? That's all we need to say. All right. Well, let's pray. Uh, our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word, and we pray that you would open our eyes to it uh, this morning, uh, that we would know uh, what it means to know you and to be found in you, uh, rather than to simply be known by the world and thought of as a Christian. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, if you would, in your pew Bibles, page 877, it's uh, Luke 18. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when, when I just talk about a topic or speak topically that, that doesn't necessarily have any, it has a connection to the Bible, but if I'm not rooted in a text, I get very uncomfortable. I don't like that. Uh, and so, uh, even though we're going through a bit of a topical series, I want to be sure that we're always uh, rooted in, uh, in the Word. And uh, Luke 18 is, is a chapter that most of you are familiar with, but I would caution anybody, including me, against thinking that when you get to a part of the Bible and you think, oh, I've heard this a million times, what new could possibly come out of this uh, to pump the brakes for a minute? That especially is true of passages like in Luke's gospel that we'll hear Christmas Eve, uh, where uh, the angel appears to the shepherds, uh, and the wise men go and and visit uh, the newborn uh, Jesus. And so some of us could probably, uh, thanks to Charlie Brown's Christmas, recite uh, that passage from Luke. Uh, And yet, Luke 18 is one of those passages that is familiar to many of you if you've grown up in the church, and certainly if you're a believer. But I want to talk this morning about... um, the fish on the back of my car. And by that I mean uh, when I was in high school, that's when that really uh, came into vogue. And then when I was in college, I don't know if you ever saw it, uh, the atheist began to appropriate the fish and they would put little feet on the fish and an eye and a horn or something like that. And in the middle of the fish, it would say Darwin. And then the Christians turned around and got a really big fish to eat the Darwin fish. Uh, and on the Christian fish, it said truth. And, uh, and it just kind of went from there. And I don't see as many, um, as many fish on the back of cars uh, as I used to. And I think that that might be one because uh, there are fewer Christian bookstores than there used to be. And they were so easy to get. Uh, I don't even know if we have fish uh, here in, in our bookstore. Uh, but uh, when I was in high school, putting a fish on the back of the car was the way to say, I'm a Christian which was a problem for me because there was a complete and continues to be a complete spiritual disconnect between my faith and the way that I drive. And, uh, 
and so I have a feeling that there are many people today who are not Christians because of the fish on the back of my car. Um, uh, but I want to admit, too, that there was a part of me that I wanted other people to know uh, that I was a Christian. And yet, as I began, uh, as I grew older into college and, and then post-college and into uh, adulthood, um, I began to run into people who would have fish on the back of their car, and it seemed to me that they were more concerned that people would think of them as a Christian rather than for them to actually be a Christian. Does that make sense? That they would rather someone think of them as, as a believer, and the way that that was indicated was the outward act of putting a fish on the back of the car. This happened in a very real way. Uh, but manifested in a different way with a family member of mine who was uh, behaving in such an atrocious and abhorrent manner that it was, it was really hard for me to be around them. And uh, I remember finally we decided to go to lunch one day and I got in the car with them and when they turned on the car, they immediately turned it to the Christian radio station. And they wanted me to see that, that they had it on their, their pre-save. Remember when we used to have those? Uh, the, the, the pre-save. Uh, remember when you used to mash it and the thing would go down? Anyway, uh, on the pre-save, the pre-set thing so that um, they would give the impression of even though I'm doing this in my life, uh, I want you to think something else about me. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't put fish on the back of our car or that we shouldn't wear... Um, crosses uh, even. I mean, that's probably the most obvious example in our culture where the cross, uh, if you've ever really thought about it, wearing a cross around your neck is like wearing an electric chair around your neck. It's, it's, it's strange. It's, it's an object of, uh, of torture. It's, it's, it's an execution device. Uh, but now, it's just jewelry. Uh, and so, uh, lots of people uh, will wear crosses without uh, actually embracing its full and complete meaning. Well, Jesus uh, has a lot to say uh, about this, and um, uh, I, I want um, to look at Luke 18, because this is where he really gets into it. I don't want to really want to look at the parable of the persistent widow, but one of the things that I've been corrected on is that I thought that these parables, um, well, that 18 didn't go completely together, but it's pretty clear that chapter 18 is one cohesive thing. There's a thread running through it, and I think that you'll pick up on it pretty quickly. So let's start with 18 verse 9. Jesus also told this parable some, to some who trusted in themselves that, the, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And then the man went away. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Okay, Jesus is saying here that there are two ways that people basically approach life. Uh, The first one is completely human-oriented and is built on the idea of human achievement. And that is my standing in this life and in the next is rooted and built upon what I'm able to do in this world. And the other way that Jesus says here is one that has a complete and total dependence upon God. Now that latter way, uh, which is marked by God's sovereignty and God's mercy and God's provision, uh, is assuredly the way to heaven. But the other way, Jesus would say, assuredly is the way to hell. So it's been rightly said that heaven is populated with sinners and hell is populated with the self-righteous. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he begins uh, by telling this story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. It's a parable. Uh, but it's, uh, Jesus has a way of telling stories that you can see it in your mind, can't you, uh, of these two men uh, praying up at the temple. And what I want you to see is that this Pharisee is not a man about town. Uh, he's not this urbane man who uh, has uh, made a way for himself in the world. What is Jesus having him engaged in? We enter into the story that he's gone up into the temple to do what? One of the most spiritual and religious things you could possibly do. He's gone up to pray. So this is not somebody that you would look at in your life and say, gosh, that guy, he is far away. By outward appearances, this Pharisee is the very model of what it means to be spiritual, to be religious, to be a believer. And he goes up into the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And then he gets cut off. But you can tell that he's going to keep going. And not just that, it would not have been completely unusual for the person to pray aloud. And so here is this tax collector, I mean this Pharisee, standing in a place that, is a, uh, that the public would notice, and also even over here. And the juxtaposition of having that man pray with the tax collector standing far off. Now, when you listen to the prayer of the, of the Pharisee, it's very clear that who was at the center of his faith? Himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who's right there. 
You see, he had orchestrated his life in such a way that he was very deliberate and careful about the sins that he was able to commit and those he was unwilling to commit. Oh, well, we do that, don't we? I mean, I, I, I got to give it to you. Some of y'all are, do a much better job of hiding your sins than others. You're really good at it. Um, and isn't that true that sometimes we'll, we think we know someone and then all of a sudden something becomes public and we think, my goodness, it's almost unbelievable. And in the same way, this Pharisee is able to say, I'm a, I'm a great guy. And certainly, compared to this tax collector, I'm fantastic. Uh, we've talked about this before. Gossip is the hope that God grades on a curve. The only reason why People Magazine and those types of things exist is to self-justify. Because just when we think, man, my life's a mess, there's Kim Kardashian. Right? And, and is it, there's a part of us that actually wants somebody like that in our lives. I mean, when you're in the classroom, if you can think back to these days, and you're in the class and the professor hands out the test and you realize that you look at it and there, you've got a 60 on it. And he says, but there's hope, I'm going to grade on the curve. And you look to your neighbor to the right, well, they got a 75. You hate their guts. And then the person next to you, you look, they got a 40. And you kind of scoot over next to them and put your arm around them and say, oh, they're there. They'll be grading on the curve. Why? Because the person that got the 40... It's going to make you look good. It's, it's going to bump your grade up a little bit. And so very rarely are we going to associate ourselves with people uh, who uh, can outperform us. And so that's why this man says, look at that tax collector. Uh, Dan Ariely, who I think is a really uh, neat guy, he's an economic uh, sociologist. Uh, he did a famous TED Talk a couple years ago and uh, he, he's the guy that works with companies to show them how to advertise, how to do surveys, to basically get the answers he wants you to give. Uh, so uh, he wrote a book a couple years ago called uh, Irrationally Rational, that actually all of us are irrational people, but that can be gauged and depended upon. And one of the things that Dan Ariely says in his book is he said, he said, actually, there are things that you can do apart from diet and wardrobe and haircuts and those kinds of things and even surgical procedures to make yourself look better. Do you know the most effective way to make yourself look better according to his research? Befriend someone who is an uglier version of you who kind of looks like you, but is definitely not as attractive. I mean, that's kind of creepy uh, and and weird, uh, and yet Ariely is actually just echoing what Jesus is saying here, is that what we try to do is we try to find people that we can compare ourselves to that make us look good. And so this man would much rather be thought of as being faithful and strong and devout and certainly not like this tax collector. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And of course, as I said before, he's in the context of praying. His fish on the back of his car is platinum. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So Jesus takes these two and says, there's a big difference between these two men. And one of them is assured of heaven and the other one is not. Now let's go to the rich young ruler. We're going to come back to the, to the tax collector. The rich young ruler says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Already in the question, it's a super spiritual question. But he's already given away the whole story. What must I do? Just tell me what to do. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now, this is the second table of the Ten Commandments that Jesus gives here. Not the first table. The second table deals with how do we relate to one another as neighbors. So this is what Jesus is saying. And in fact, these are normally where people get the most caught up because the ones in relating to God, you can kind of hide. Clearly, the, the Pharisee was able to do that in his own life. But Jesus says, don't do these things. And the man says, all these I have kept from my youth. So Jesus says, one thing you lack so all you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, actually, Jesus, this is not some sort of blanket general command, but you see what Jesus has done, that he's held up the second table of the law, and the man says, well, I've done all that. I am the best neighbor that anyone could ever want. Honor your father and mother. I've got them in a real nice place at St. Martin's. It's great, and I visit them twice a week. But you see what he does? When he says this, what he's actually doing is putting the first table of the law in front of the man. You shall have no other gods but me. Because Jesus sees clearly that this man is not following God. He's following after himself. And the thing that he clings most tightly to, which in this instance happens to be money, Jesus says, you've got to get rid of it. And then come and follow me, because you think you're following me, but you're actually not. But when Jesus, but when the man heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. As sad as this man was, it doesn't compare to how sad Jesus was when this man went away sad. Now, before the rich young ruler, we have this uh, incident where people were bringing the infants to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples saw it. They said, get away with those children. But Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus is not talking about baptism. Someone uh, brought that up one time. Because you see, where is this in the context of? You've got the Pharisee and the tax collector, then you've got the children, then you've got the rich young ruler. This is intentional. Jesus is trying to show the utter dependence that the believer has to experience in this world to actually taste salvation. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with it, but in fact we do struggle with it. But Jesus is saying that when you look at your own life and how you approach God, do you approach it like the Pharisee or do you approach it like the tax collector? 
Because the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's actually in touch with the weight of his own sin, and the burden of it is intolerable. God, take it away. And his sin actually gives him, well, one, he goes off in the corner because he doesn't really want to be around other people because if they only knew the way he really was, they would never talk to him. And, of course, the the Pharisee affirms that point. But not just that. There's a sense in which it must have been incredibly difficult for this tax collector to make his way up into the temple. On the one hand, because you've got guys like this Pharisee saying, what's he doing here? We know who he is. He's a tax collector. But moreover, the great burden that this man carries with him to the temple and praying out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's not a flowery prayer. It's short, it's to the point, it's from the heart. And Jesus says that man was relieved of his burden, and he goes down justified. He goes down without condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This man goes away a freed man, where the Pharisee leaves the temple thinking, I've done God a favor. How lucky God is to have someone like me in his fold. And to really drive it home, Jesus starts in with the kids. Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. You know, I, I used to read this and think, oh, well, it's because children are, are so innocent, and then I had them. <laughs> so what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that there is something about children that unfortunately we lose as we grow older, of an utter dependence, and in many cases, helplessness that they have. And so Jesus is saying, are you approaching me like that child? On the one hand, understanding that that you can't provide for yourself even your next meal, and yet you know that I'm going to provide your next meal. And to receive it with great joy. I'm still waiting for the day that after I take my family out to dinner, one of my children pushes back from the table and says, hey, I got this. The next meal's on me. <laughs> and yet, don't we, we play that game with one another. We, in the back of our minds, think, now, who of our friends, who paid for the meal last time? And it's our time. And then if you end up paying for two meals in a row, you kind of resent the friends, but you don't know what to do about it. I mean, this, these are the things that you think about. Or this time of year, you've got the stack of Christmas cards to go to the people who you forgot to send one, but you send them a Christmas card because they sent you a Christmas card. Now, of course, you never do that. And just FYI, we're not doing Christmas cards this year, so if you don't get one from us, it's not because we don't love you. We're just too tired. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is what Jesus is talking about, that, that there is not a tit-for-tat, there's not a quid pro quo, uh, when it comes to the relationship with God. And it's clear that that's what the Pharisee thinks. It's clear that's what the rich young ruler thinks. But by outward appearances, everybody's saying, gosh, that's, that's the model spiritual person, that Pharisee. In fact, the disciples are are, are so alarmed by Jesus' reaction to this rich young person, Peter, those who heard it said, then who could be saved? If that guy doesn't get in, then who gets in? P- 
people who put their faith simply in the sheer grace and gift of God. And how is this mercy demonstrated? What is this mercy that they're appropriating and taking hold of? Well, Luke 18 tells us. Verse 31. And talking the twelve, and taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am going to be the one who stands in the gap for you. I'm going to come under the judgment that you deserve. I'm going to die the death that you deserve to die. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Bless you. So Jesus is really here in chapter 18, and you can even continue on with the blind beggar, who was another one where he's, uh, let's just keep going. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, verse 38, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him. This is often the case, isn't it? That we, we almost treat Christianity and especially our sort of denominational identities, almost like we do the colonial dames or the sons of the American Revolution, that that's kind of crazy Christians that do this kind of stuff, that get into this stuff. You know, if someone came up to you and said, I I just want to talk to you about how overwhelmed I am with the mercy of God because I'm such a wretched sinner. You sort of do this number, right? You you sort of, you know, you're, you're one of those Christians, and yet Jesus is saying this is actually the default position of a Christian. So it's no different in Jesus' day. Some guy cries out for mercy, and they start to rebuke him, telling him, be quiet. Don't be such a weirdo. You know, I believe in being a Christian, but you've taken this too far. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. This man realizes if I'm going to be healed, it's going to be through Jesus. And at this point in my life, I've been brought so low, I don't care what anybody else thinks. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. You see the thread, I hope, that's running through uh, Luke 18, where you have two approaches to living in this world. One is a human-centered approach that is built on achievement, even religious achievement. My family has been a member of thus and such church for, in Beaufort, South Carolina, 300 years. The church is over 300 years old. Names are on the walls. Uh, I've, uh, you know, I, I, 
I pray every single day, and, um, and, and I, I do it more out of obligation, if I'm really honest. Um, and uh, I've got a fish in the back of my car, and uh, I, I give uh, money. Uh, I gave $500 uh, to a charitable organization last year, uh, which is, you know, I, I've got another family member who, uh, who once told me, she said, I'm, I'm kind of proud of myself. And I said, tell me why. And she said, well, because we went to church last Sunday, and these, these people don't go to church. And I said, well, good for you. And, and I said, well, how'd it go? And she said, well, pretty good. I, I put $50 in the plate. I said, $50? And she said, you, you don't think that's a lot? And I said, well, I guess it all really depends on what's a lot. Like, I mean, is that $50 a week? And she's like, no, just $50 for the one go. And I said, well, do you think it's a lot? And she goes, well, paying the preacher $50 for work in one hour, that's pretty good. I do all of these things, and really all it is is a projection. And it doesn't justify me. It's getting in touch with who we are, that we are really overburdened with sin, and we have no other rescue and no other source of mercy than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to Him like a little child. We don't bring anything, we simply come forward, and He becomes our all in all. He's the one we run to, he's the one we cling to, and he's the one in whom we hide our lives. I'll open it up for questions, comments, and concerns. Hey. I wouldn't expect anything less. That means it's all about you? Or? One, of the, one of the questions, or one of the, um, the scholars who was talking about, like, the real Jesus right. was saying that, I mean, the whole thing just had sort of an uncomfortable vibe to it, but um, he was saying that Jesus didn't expect at all to be going to the cross, like the real Jesus. Right. And when you just read that, I mean, that is just critical selection, right? I right. mean, that's just a critical choice he's making about what he's seeing in the Bible because Gunnar and I talked about it after. I was like, basically that discredits what he's saying, in my opinion, right. or it just means he can't read. Yeah, um, so, yeah, I mean, so one of the things and why I think critical scholarship has taken such a foothold uh, in the church, because I bet you a lot of those guys that were being interviewed are teaching seminary. <laughs> um, and, um, and it's because we don't know our Bibles. We don't know our Bibles. And so, let's take this a step further. If we're really honest, there's a, let me just be honest for myself, there's a part of me that almost would be happy if America just kind of remained a Christian nation, just a name. And so, I think Jesus would say here too, do you get more excited when your person wins an election or when things seem to go your way than you do when someone becomes a believer? Do you put the same emotional investment in the gospel that you do in these, these other really surfacey things? Because if we want to see the renewal of a nation, I'm thinking about this a lot with Thanksgiving because I had about 100 conversations like this over Thanksgiving. 
Jesus is saying here is if you want to see the renewal of the nation, a lot of people think, well, we just need more people like these Pharisees. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The way to renew a nation is that individual men and women come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and know the burden of their own guilt. That's how a nation is renewed. So a while back, I think I talked about one of the uh, great revivals in the history of the church, the Welsh revival in the early 20th century, how uh, within a year of the revival breaking out, uh, there were over 50% fewer convictions in, um, in, 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 in courts than, uh, than before the revival. And that was not because the Welsh decided to have some sort of campaign to dissuade people from various and sundry things. The only area that, where there was an increase, I think I told you this, was uh, in bankruptcies, and they were all pubs claiming bankruptcy. So, so I think that, yeah, if you don't, well, let's, okay, we've got one more second. You know, look back to Luke chapter 2. Let's talk about, uh, actually, Luke chapter, um, Luke chapter 1. So around this time of year, and this may actually not be anything that any of you are struggling with, but the, the virgin birth. I'm okay with Jesus, but I can't, I like him, he's a good teacher, but I can't really believe in the virgin birth. What's the problem with that? Well, let's see what the Bible has to say about it. So we're looking at chapter 1, and um, Mary says in verse 34, how, can, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son in this sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. How can this be, she says. The angel asks, nothing is impossible with God, which means... If you believe in a God who is limited and not able to do the extraordinary, even the miraculous, of course you're not going to believe in the virgin birth. But if you believe in a God of impossibilities, who's actually able to do the impossible, and that was in Luke 18 too. For with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then the virgin birth becomes believable. And so it's actually... It's actually an issue of what do we think about God? What do we think about His Word? And if we think that we stand over the text and judge it rather than it standing over us and judging our hearts like the tax collector who says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, it makes all the difference in the world and and how we interpret the Word and how we relate to God, whether we think that God owes us or whether we think that God is actually not able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so those guys, you know, funny enough that, I mean, even um, at the University of Virginia, where I went to school, I don't know if you knew that, um, that um, we had a guy in the religious studies department who was a thoroughgoing nut. He was the guy that you dreaded your children getting their first year of college because he, complete, he went for the jugular, and he knew just enough more to be troublesome you know, really undo people. But he was so far out there that it wasn't that long after I left that he was actually driven out of the religious studies department. That even the more liberal folks on there were like, this is, you've got an agenda. This is not scholarship. 
This is an agenda that's rooted in some sort of emotional vendetta that you have against Christianity and is not even suitable for the academy. So when I run into people who say, well, I don't really believe the Bible is the Word of God or I don't really believe that God exists, um, it's almost always an emotional issue, some sort of experience that they've had in their lives, and very rarely is it an intellectual thing because then when you start to read it plainly, it's sort of, you know, Jesus never said that. Well, Jesus just did say that. Helen, Ken? Uh, John Wesley in his journal on the last sermon he preached as an Anglican priest tied the Pharisee and the rich young ruler together and said, one thing thou lackest. And he said, he didn't love God. Right. I was that man, that's what he Mm. said. (laughs) And uh, that was before his conversion. Yeah, so good, good. Kim was talking about John Wesley, who uh, was ordained and was even a missionary before he became a Christian. And he said that the difference was that he didn't love God. Um, he had sort of an intellectual... Con- I'd encourage you to get online and read Wesley's conversion story. Uh, it's, it's really remarkable uh, to think about that. And that, that's exactly where we find ourselves in Luke 18. John Wesley is a, is a poster child uh, for that. And so, um, well, we're at a close. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Oh, Lord, we pray that we would know you and that you would know us rather than to strive to be thought of as one who was known by you. Uh, Lord, we we know that there's nothing wrong with, with the things that have been enumerated in Luke 18, that in fact they're often godly activities, but apart from a deep and abiding love and relationship with you and and coming into touch with our own sinfulness and your great mercy. Uh, They're just nothing. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would work in our hearts in such a way that we might ask, where do we stand with you? Are we children who run to you as a loving father? Or are we children trying to make our way in the woods of the world? We pray that you would move in our hearts, Lord Jesus, that we might come to you, know you, love you, and serve you. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.